Well, I'd like to invite you now to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as we make our way through this letter uh, penned by the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth in the mid-50s AD, we come to chapter 15, uh, sort of the final main section of this letter. And I'd like to read to us uh, the first 11 verses. So let us once again give ear to the reading of God's word. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. When the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you once again for your word. We thank you for the truth and the power that it conveys. For indeed, it testifies to us concerning the person and work of your Son, Christ Jesus, our Lord. So we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you would grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved the Lord, several years ago, a producer for the radio show, The White Horse Inn, took a, uh, took a microphone and recording device and went to a Christian bookseller's convention. And with that microphone, he went around and he asked people a very simple question. What is the gospel? As you can imagine, he got several answers. But of all the different types of answers that people gave to that question, what is the gospel? There was only one that resembled the definition that the Apostle Paul gives of the gospel in our passage today. Well, as I was telling you that story, perhaps you were thinking yourself, what would I say if somebody jammed a microphone in my face? Or better yet, if somebody that you're witnessing to asks you, what is the gospel? See, that word gospel is something that we use so frequently, we throw it around, and yet how often do we pause and reflect, what is the gospel? We just assume, I think, that all of us knows what it is, and we believe it, and we move on from there. But I think it's helpful for us to pause and reflect upon the very content and nature of the gospel itself. And that's what the Apostle Paul does in our passage today. You see, boys and girls, the the word gospel simply means good news, or as the old King James says, glad tidings. In the ancient world, whenever you would win a battle, or if there would be a new king seated on the throne... You wouldn't hear about it on the radio. You wouldn't hear about it on television or better yet with Twitter on your phone. 
No, they would send out people, they would send out heralds that would run from city to city and proclaim good news. They They would proclaim, we won, or there's a new king on the throne, victory. It was glad tidings that they would proclaim. And and people loved having that job, being the bearer of good news. We see the Apostle Paul takes that word that was so common in the ancient world, and he applies it to himself and to his fellow apostles as they speak of, uh, as, as they proclaim even greater news than anything an earthly messenger could proclaim. Well, as I said, Paul reflects in, upon that proclamation of the gospel and the gospel message itself in our passage today. But it's important to note that we are beginning a new section in the book of Corinthians. After a very lengthy treatment of ethical and practical issues that Paul addresses, addressing all of the various sins and mistakes and issues that were going on in, in the church of Corinth, Paul now turns to a, a doctrinal issue the doctrine of the resurrection. You see, some in the church at Corinth, as we find out in verse 12, were actually denying that there was a resurrection. And for Paul, this was a very serious thing because denial of the resurrection necessarily entails a denial of Christ's resurrection. As he says, if the dead are not raised, then neither has Christ been raised. And so the very heart of the gospel itself was at stake. Here, perhaps Paul addresses the most serious sin that was going on in Corinth at the time. And so saving the worst for last, the apostle Paul takes on, tackles this topic of the resurrection. And while heresy is never a good thing, we can be thankful that the Apostle Paul was forced to confront this issue, at least in writing, because we have here in 1 Corinthians 15 the the clearest and, and fullest treatment of the doctrine of the resurrection. There's so much we learn about this. From, our cha- uh, from this chapter. And so we're going to spend several Sundays in this glorious chapter, 58 verses, by the way. Uh, but we're going to be looking, pri- focusing primarily just on the first five verses of the chapter today. So we see that Paul, the Apostle Paul begins by reminding his readers. He says, I would remind you, or literally, I would make known unto you the gospel. Apparently, the Apostle Paul felt it necessary at the very end of this letter, to remind his readers of the gospel that he had previously proclaimed unto them. Because apparently, some of them had forgotten it. And he speaks of the gospel, uh, he he reminds them of the gospel that he had preached to them, but I want you to notice that the way in which he speaks of the gospel. It's not just some message, some ethereal message that you can kind of make it whatever you want it to be. No, he speaks of it as a particular message with a particular content that the Apostle Paul had received that he had then delivered to the Corinthians through preaching. You notice that there? He he speaks in verse 3. He says, I delivered to you what I also received. It's a particular message with a particular content that can be taken, given, and received. This reminds us of what Jude speaks of when he says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith 
that was once for all delivered to the saints. That message of the gospel, as Jude calls it, the faith, is a particular message that needs to be defended, received, and proclaimed. This is what we call tradition in a good sense. Tradition is literally something that is received and then passed along. You see, the Roman Catholic Church talks about tradition, but their tradition is something that exists outside of Scripture, some sort of unwritten rule or law that no one can quite put their finger on, and yet it bears equal authority with Scripture itself, according to the Roman Catholic Church. But when we look at Scripture, we see that there is a tradition. There is something that was delivered from Jesus to the apostles and then to the church and handed down from generation to generation. And yet that tradition is not something that exists alongside of Scripture. It was something that was written in Scripture. And so tradition is not something that exists alongside the gospel. It is the gospel. And that gospel, that gospel tradition, the Apostle Paul received, not from man, but from the Lord himself. As he describes his receiving this gospel in Galatians chapter 1, he says, For I I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So the Apostle Paul was very zealous to defend the fact that he didn't receive the gospel tradition from Peter or from James or any other man, but from the risen Lord himself. And then Paul passed on that gospel to his listeners. He describes that in the second half of verse 1 when he says, you received this gospel. Well, the very fact that the, that the Corinthians or anyone else, for that matter, receives this gospel message is a demonstration of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit. Paul reflected upon the way in which he proclaimed the gospel to the Corinthians in the first place, all the way back in chapter 2 when he says, Brothers, I did not come to you proclaiming uh, the, the mystery of God, the gospel itself, with lofty speech or worldly wisdom. But he says, I came to you in weakness and fear and in much trembling, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So the simple proclamation of of the gospel tradition to the Corinthians, their reception of it is a demonstration of the power of the Spirit, not Paul's eloquence, not Paul's ability to persuade people or make friends, but no, the Spirit granting to them faith, opening their minds so that they might embrace the things of the Spirit of God. Well, you notice that he goes on to describe the way, the relationship that the Corinthians have with the gospel. Not only did they initially receive it by faith, but he also says about the gospel, he says, in which you stand, or perhaps better translated, in which you have taken your stand, as the NIV translates it, since this is Uh, The the verb there is past tense, but it's not just past tense as in one and done. You walk down the aisle, you take your stand in the gospel, and then leave it alone. No, the idea here in the Greek is that they have taken their stand in the past, but with present significance. That is, they continue to stand upon the gospel. See, the gospel is not something that we believe and then move on with our Christian lives. No, it is something that gives us a new identity or a new standing 
that radically reorientates the entirety of our lives. And so we are, as, uh, as those who have received the gospel, we have taken our stand in the gospel. We are new creatures in Christ, and we continue daily to wake up and identify ourselves with that new standing we have through Christ. Well, not only did the Corinthians receive the gospel, take their stand on the gospel, but the Apostle Paul in verse 2 says that the gospel is saving them. He says, and by which you are being saved. Now, strictly speaking, the gospel does not save you. God does through Jesus Christ. But he uses faith in that message of the gospel He uses faith in that message to unite us to Christ. But did you notice how the Apostle Paul, the the, the verb that he uses there, the tense of the verb, he doesn't say by which you were saved, but he says by which you are being saved, present tense. And so that reminds us that the gospel, or sorry, that reminds us that salvation is a process. Paul describes that process in Romans chapter 8 when he says, Uh, Those of which he called, he also justified. And those in which he justified, he also sanctified. And those in which he sanctified, he also glorified. I assume most of you looked in the mirror this morning to make sure your hair was right or you brushed your teeth. But you probably noticed when you're looking in the mirror that you're not yet glorified. I was somewhat disappointed this morning. (laughs) Salvation is a process. As we'll see in the rest of this chapter, we have much to look forward to, the glorification of the sons of God. And so it is faith, it's reception in the gospel, it's taking our stand in the gospel, and it is the experience of salvation through the power of the gospel, of course, all through Jesus Christ, that we are being saved. But then the Apostle Paul attaches a condition. Notice there in verse 2, he says, if you hold fast to the word that I preach to you. Now, does this suggest that God can only do so much in saving us, and at the end of the day, we must do our part? Is Paul suggesting that somehow we might be able to lose our salvation if we don't cling or hold fast to the gospel itself? Well, no. As we've noticed in our study of the canons of Dort, we, we see that Scripture clearly teaches that all those who are truly united to Christ by faith, will persevere until the end. Of course, all through the grace of God. And by persevering until the end, the Apostle Paul can say that if you hold fast, then you will be saved. So God, by his grace, will cause all of the elect to persevere to the end. But this does not negate the need for us to constantly cling to Christ as he is offered to us in the gospel. You see this so many times throughout the epistle to the Hebrews. Uh, for example, in, in Hebrews chapter 2, the author says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And so, constantly clinging to Christ by the grace of God, we will persevere to the end. And that's why the Apostle Paul can attach this condition. You must constantly cling to Christ. You cannot drift away from what you have heard, as Paul says, unless you believed in vain. Now, here again, this might cause us to wonder, well, wait a minute. Can true faith 
ever be in vain? Is it possible for God to give grace to somebody and for that grace to somehow be all for nothing? Well, no. The Apostle Paul, in, in our reading today, says the grace of God in verse 10, the grace of God towards me was not in vain. There's never a time in which God's effectual grace goes out and somehow it is rendered ineffectual or rendered in vain. As Paul says at the very end of this chapter, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And so how can the Apostle Paul say, well, unless you believed in vain? I think it's important to note that the Greek word translated vain here is different from the Greek word translated vain in those other two verses, verse 10 and verse 58. It's a a similar related idea, but a different concept. And perhaps a better way in translating our verse, the word in vain in in verse 2 is is better translated without due consideration. Unless you believed without due consideration of the gospel itself. In other words, the Apostle Paul is floating the possibility that the Corinthians didn't properly grasp the gospel when he proclaimed it to them in the first place. That is, their faith was not rooted in a proper understanding of it. This happens to us all the time. It's it's called a breakdown in communication. You say something to somebody, they nod their head, and you assume that they understand what you're saying, only to find out later that they had no idea what you were talking about. And that's what the Apostle Paul is suggesting here when he says, you received the gospel, you took your stand in the gospel, you're being saved by the gospel if you hold fast to it, unless you maybe didn't understand what I was proclaiming to you in the first place. And so let me tell you again, the Apostle Paul is saying. And so having addressed the nature and the reception of the gospel, what it does for us, the Apostle Paul now in verse 3 turns to its content. This is, by the way, the correct answer that if anyone ever puts a microphone in your your face and says, what's the gospel? You could just say this. In verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And then the Apostle Paul goes on and he defines, summarizes the gospel message, boiling it down to its most essential points. And he uses four different verbs to describe the good news of the gospel of salvation in Christ Jesus. First, the first verb he uses is in verse 3 when he says that Christ died for our sins. It's important for us to note that Christ, not just that Christ died, but that Christ died for a purpose. Jesus was not just a political martyr. He was not just an example of God's love, but he was our substitute. He died for us, that is, in our place. He bore the curse of the law. He bore the penalty of sin that we all deserved. Paul will describe this beautifully in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 when he says, For our sake he made, him to, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's that beautiful exchange. Christ gets our sin, we get his righteousness. Or in Galatians chapter 3, 
Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And so that's the first part of the gospel message, that Christ died, not just in general, but that Christ died for our sins as our substitute. But Paul attaches this other notion that this was actually taught in the Old Testament, that this gospel message is in accordance with the Scriptures. You see, the law and the prophets, the whole of the Old Testament, bear witness to the sufferings of Christ. This is what Jesus teaches in Luke chapter 24 when he rebukes the two disciples on the road to Emmaus who had been dejected and who, uh, were, uh, uh, who had given up their hope that, Christ, that Jesus was the Christ because he had been crucified. He says to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Here, Jesus is clearly showing that the whole of the Old Testament testifies not just to the glorification of Christ, but also to the necessary sufferings which would come before it. Now, Luke doesn't tell us what passages Jesus explained when he says, beginning with Moses and all the scriptures, but I think one of the clearest places that we could go to to find the Old Testament teaching of the need for the suffering of Christ as our substitute would be Isaiah chapter 53. Verses 5 and 6 say, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So the first part of that gospel message is that Christ died for our sins, even as the Old Testament prophets proclaimed and foretold of the day in which he would do that. Well, the next part of the gospel uh, it, it, uh, may surprise us in verse 4. We're so used to going from Christ's death immediately to his resurrection that we forget this other part of the gospel story that Paul includes in verse 4 when he says, and that he was buried. As I said, we so often want to skip ahead to the resurrection, but there's this other part that is the burial of Christ that even finds its way into the Apostles' Creed, as we confessed even today, that he was crucified, died, and was buried. It's interesting, the Heidelberg Catechism asks the question, why is it included in the the Apostles' Creed that he was buried? And I love the profound answer. It is to show thereby that he was really dead. That's it. It's very simple. You see, we confess that Jesus died, but it's also important to confess that he was dead, that that his body was resting in the tomb, that he remained under the power of death for a time in order to assure us that he really took from us the wages of sin, that Christ really was dead, that it wasn't just, he didn't just appear to die that he didn't, didn't just swoon on the cross and revive later, but know that he took the wages of sin, that is death itself, and he overcame the power of death. And so that's why that verb, that he was buried, 
is included in the gospel message, and that's why we confess it in the Apostles' Creed. Of course, no matter how many wonderful things Jesus did or said during his life, if he had stayed in that tomb, if he would have stayed buried, then we would have no gospel message at all. There is no good news if Jesus remains in that tomb, as Paul will go on to explain in verses 14 through 19, that if Christ is not raised, horrible things will be true. But in fact, Christ has been raised, as the Apostle Paul clearly asserts in verse 20, and that's why he includes for the third part of the gospel message that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. He overcame the power of death and has brought newness of life. But again, Paul reminds us that this is something that was long ago foretold by the Old Testament. The whole of the Old Testament foretells of the person and work of Christ Jesus. Now, where might we go to find the doctrine of the resurrection in the Old Testament? Well, perhaps we could go to where Peter went on the day of Pentecost. Psalm chapter 16, as he says, this is a a fulfillment of Psalm chapter 16, where he says, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. And this clearly couldn't refer to David, Peter says, because David is dead. And if you doubt it, you can go visit his tomb today. But this has to refer not to David, but to great David's greater son, as he did not allow Jesus to see corruption, but he was raised on the third day. You can go to the second half of Psalm chapter 22, where the risen Lord, uh, in the midst of the assembly, leads them in, in worship, praising God for his redemption. Or Psalm 116, where the psalmist gives thanksgiving to the Lord. He says, I had nearly seen death, but you brought me back. Or Psalm 118, which, which says, this is the day that the Lord had made. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. You see, the rejection of Christ has become the chief cornerstone through the resurrection of Jesus. And so the whole of the Old Testament foretells of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But did you notice also the Apostle Paul says not just that Christ was raised in accordance with the Scriptures, but that he was raised on the third day. We might wonder, well, is, is the Old Testament that specific? Did it prophesy that Jesus would not just raise, but that he would raise on the third day? Well, yes, I think it does. As Jesus himself teaches in Matthew chapter 12, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Another place we might turn is Hosea chapter 6, which says, after two days he will revive us, And on the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Well, some might say, well, wait a minute, that's talking about Israel and the restoration of the nation after exile. I would say, yes, that's true. Until you remember the fact that Christ is the true Israel. Christ is the one, the true Israel, out of, uh, as as Hosea says in, in chapter 11, out of Egypt I have called my son. And so Israel, being the Son of God, only points forward to the true Son of God, Jesus Christ himself, who was raised on the third day so that he may live before God and we might live together with him. 
Well, the Apostle Paul has summarized the gospel thus far as that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. But there's one more element to the good, the good news of the gospel. And we find that in verse 5 when he says, and that he appeared. You see, these post-resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ that we read of in the New Testament prove that his resurrection wasn't just a spiritual resurrection. It wasn't just Jesus living on in our hearts or living on uh, through the power of his spirit or through the cause of the gospel. No, the New Testament clearly speaks of a physical resurrection that is proven through his appearances over the course of 40 days. And it's interesting how when we read the gospel accounts of the appearances of Jesus, they weren't just to gullible, pre-scientific people who would believe anything and everything that you told them, but they go out of their way to describe the skepticism, even of the apostles themselves. Notice in Luke 24, the way in which Luke describes one of the appearances of Jesus to his disciples. We read, but they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see me. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said, he said to them, have you anything to eat? Now, a lot of commentators will suggest that Jesus asked for something to eat because he wanted to prove further that he wasn't just a spirit. He wanted to prove that he was physical, and by uh, eating a piece of broiled fish, he was able to prove that tangibly to them. And I think there's some truth to that. But I like to think that Jesus just liked to eat, because I like to eat. makes me feel like my Lord. Have you got anything to eat, Jesus says. He's not a spirit. This is a physical resurrection. This is an appearance of Jesus. And we see many other instances. You might think of the time of doubting Thomas, uh, who wasn't there at that first instance. And he later said, unless I put my hand in the holes, my finger in the holes of his hands and in his feet, I will not believe Jesus appeared and said, be my guest. And so these appearances are also part of the good news of the gospel because they tangibly approve, prove to us that Christ really has been physically raised from the dead. But these appearances to the apostles that we will consider, Lord willing, next Sunday, as we consider the rest of the passage I read for you today, these appearances to Peter and to Paul and to the Twelve and to the others, they also serve as callings for these individuals to serve as witnesses to the resurrection. And as they were commissioned to deliver this message of salvation, this good news uh, to the listeners, they were tasked to be the heralds of the proclamation of the good news of salvation through Christ. And they were to take that message, that content, which does not change, and hand it down from one generation to the next. 
And we see that process of proclamation and reception at the very end of our passage in verse 11, when Paul says, whether then it was I or they, so we preached and you believed. We preach, you believe. We confess that faith is created in our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit, but he uses the preaching of the gospel. All of this is made possible through the foolishness of preaching. As silly as it is to have a sinful, fallible human being proclaim a message to you, God could have sent his heavenly angels to proclaim the gospel of salvation, but no, he chose weak, frail, and feeble, and sinful men to proclaim this message, and in so doing, to create faith in the hearts of the listeners. Paul describes the necessity of preaching in Romans chapter 10 when he says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Then he has a list of rhetorical questions. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now, we don't know what the Apostle Paul looked like, but we can be confident that he had beautiful feet. Because the prophet Isaiah said that anyone who proclaims the message of the gospel has beautiful feet. Again, think of those heralds who run from city to city, bringing the news of victory or the news of the reign of a new king, bringing good news. They have beautiful feet. You want to hear those feet coming to you because you know they're bringing good news. And even though uh, we've never seen the Apostle Paul, we know he has beautiful feet, and perhaps you've never seen my feet. But I can assure you, I have beautiful feet. Why? Well, because the Lord has commissioned me to preach the gospel to you. And we can rejoice in that there's power in that message. Not in, the, not in the messenger, but in the message itself as we hear this simple message that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised, and that he appeared. When we embrace that by faith, we take our stand upon it, and we know that we are being saved by that message as we cling to Christ as he's offered to us in the gospel. Amen? Let's give thanks. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we do thank you that you were pleased in the fullness of time to be born of woman, to be born under the law, in order to live a life of suffering and obedience, and ultimately in uh, obedience unto the point of death on the cross for us and for our salvation. We thank you that you did not remain in the tomb, but were raised and appeared and have, been, uh, as- have ascended on high, where you continue to rule and reign us by your word and spirit. We thank you for this message of the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. And we pray, Lord, that as we are reminded of the content of the gospel, that we would continue to take our stand upon the gospel as we are continually being conformed more and more into your image until the day in which you will come and make all things new. And we ask all this in your name. Amen.